boogeyman is real, and you found him. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. What's blood for, if not for shedding? I'm your number one fan. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? We all go a little mad sometimes. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Seven days. <laughs> I am Dracula. We have such sights to show you. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I am the eater of wounds and of children. What's in the fucking box? They're coming to get you, Barbara. One by one, we will take you. Never get out of bed again! You gotta be fucking kidding. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Welcome to prime time, bitch! Welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time, and it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror Podcast, the only podcast where sometimes the world of the living gets mixed up with the world of the dead. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week, that means on Sunday, remember, we do this live every preceding Wednesday right here on YouTube. So we hope to see you in the live chat. This week, we are looking back at select horror films released January 28th through February 3rd. Thank you all so much for joining me for what will surely be a bloody good time. I am JL. And yes, I'm holding the fort down uh, by myself tonight. Um, the guys are busy doing stuff on set. I think they are currently on some gig right now. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a lot of details about that, but I will try and deliver tonight. So it's so good to see everybody in the live chat. So we have some, I think we have some very interesting uh, films to talk about tonight. And I I do hope, one thing I have to say for one of them, no, I'll say for two of them. I really hope Eugene can make it because he, was, he said he was going to try because I would love to get his take on a couple of the films that we're going to talk about tonight because man, oh man, there's some interesting stuff there. So we're going to get into it. I promise you we're going to get into it. But how is everybody doing? First and foremost, let me get up that amazing Patreon banner. Look at all those amazing names down there traveling along on the uh, Patreon banner. Those are the amazing people who help us to make this show possible with their monthly contributions to the show. This whole thing is possible. Like, you know, yeah, whatever we're doing. And plus all the stuff we're doing behind the scenes as well. And not to mention the front row interviews. And I want to thank everybody for the support and the kind uh, compliments over the, for the last uh, the last front row interview that we did with Sean uh, Sean Hates. That was oh no, it's not Sean Hates. It was uh, with uh, Jeremy uh, Jeremy Ashley. Jeremy Ashley. That interview was fucking amazing, and I'm glad that y'all enjoyed it so much. So I really really do appreciate that. So, but yeah, our patrons help us to do all that. Help us to have like you know have conversations with cool people working in the industry. Help us to do the cool stuff we have going on behind the scenes, like Nail Gun and Eleven to Six and. You know, there's so much going on. And right now, big, big news, probably a few months down the line. So we're going to find out. We're going to see. So, but thank you so much to all of you Patreons, all you patron members. You guys rock. All you slashers and all you possessed and all you masterminds and all those individuals who have made this show possible since we started, you know, way back in 2019. Uh, let's see who we have in the live chat tonight. We've got Raven Darkstar was here first. Good to see you, Raven. Thanks so much for being here. Cherry Tilly as well, member of the Army of the Dead. Yes, you can support the channel via channel memberships right here on YouTube. If you don't, if Patreon is not your thing or PayPal or anything like that. So 
YouTube memberships. You get a whole bunch of emojis that we made for you, a whole bunch of horror icon emojis, and of course the channel badge. So we hope that y'all enjoy those. But uh, thank you, Sherry Tilly. Uh, appreciate you being here. Casey Cooper as well. Good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out. B. Blanco says, hey, everybody. Good to see you, B. Blanco. Wrote another last name. Gabba Gabba to you. This is my pet werewolf trying to bite fog. Mist. You know, it was creepily misty. The pat It has been right where I am for like two days. Like we had that, we had that like kind of cold snap where it rained a little bit and all of a sudden it froze and was just like ice everywhere. And then all of a sudden, like the very, and then it kind of warmed up. And then it's just been misty for like two days straight, like creepy misty, like, you know, like pea soup. Like I can't see on the other, like I can barely see on the other side of the street. So it's been really, really kind of creepy out here. Because sound travels weird. And, you know, if you hear stuff out there, it bounces around. And, you know, you know it's, it's just, you know, I'm just like, ah, yeah, the the, the monstrous spiders with uh, with uh, human faces are going to be popping out of there anytime soon. But uh, but it's been a lot of fun. Been pretty cool. Been very creepy. Very you know, the, I like the vibe. I like that. I like that that creepy vibe. Uh, but good to see you. Wrote it in the last name, and I uh, see who else. Travis Brown. Good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight, as well as oh, that's right. Yes, because Travis, and thank you so much for gifting that uh, gifting one of your uh, your trivia prizes to Raven Darkstar because they uh, she just received it. So. Uh, let me see who else we got. John Monahan. Good evening to you. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing well. And who else we got tonight? Yes, it was me solo. So you know that you know the show's going to start on time. Anacito Maldonado. Haven't seen you in a minute. Good to see you, Anacito. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Appreciate you hanging out with us. Must be slow on the other channels. Strange Lex 790. Good to see you, Strange Lex. Thanks so much for being here. Sarc Sarcasm as well. Says good evening, my parasocial brothers and sisters. Thank you so much for being here, Sarcasm. Javier Harris is Jello Jello. Good to see you, Javier. Jasper's here. Good to see you, Jasper, with one of those cool emojis that I made. Left-handed Jedi, good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight. Uh, Joshua Lee says, good evening, everyone. Good to see you, Joshua. Thanks so much for being here, bud. Uh, who else we got? Who else we got? 12 in chat and only four thumbs. I think we can do better than that. Thank you, Sarcasm. Yes, smash the like button. I always am terrible at that kind of promotion. But yeah, I assume if you like it, if you dislike it, you'll either smash the like button or the, or the, the thumbs up, thumbs down. But either way, those interactions really, really help. We appreciate that with the with the algorithm. Uh, but good, thank you so much, Sarcasm. Casey Cooper says, yep, another solo. Yeah, this way, you know. Ivy Gentry is here. Good to see you, Ivy. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Who else do we have? I know I've got more in the chat. So, because I see the number right there. Uh, Jinju, good to see you. Says, always in the realm of the dying. Hello, everyone. Good to see you, Jinju. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Jasper has gifted five memberships to the Army of the Dead. What do we got? Let's see. Who, who has gifted memberships? So, Raven Darkstar and Tony Regime, Glober Mom, Plothole, and Aaron Reese, two members of the actual, of the crew. I've just been gifted memberships to the Army of the Dead. Thank you so much, Jasper. Very, very uh very generous of you thanks so much appreciate that support tang whistle is here good to see you tang whistle tang whistle cpm thanks so much for hanging out nana missed you last week good to see you bud hope i hope all is doing uh going well with you thanks so much for being here nana one of our longest patrons as well so appreciate that but sketch crasher says hello jl good to see you sketch crasher because thanks so much for hanging out brooke mclymond thank you so much for being here tonight appreciate it thank you for hanging out appreciate it um yes raven i did i did hear about adam um i got the news about that and i will be talking about stuff over on my personal channel i promise you uh when i do updates on that so uh but yes i did hear about that and i'm glad that he's doing okay uh who else we got tonight brooke Lyman says, i'm just gonna ask where the f is johnny o brooke i had where's johnny o that is a fucking good question that is a really good question 
But I'll tell you who is. I'll tell you who I can tell. I can tell you. I can't tell you where Johnny O is. And I can't tell you specifically where Eugene is. And I can't tell you where Aaron is. But I can tell you where Alex is. He's right fucking here. What's up, motherfucker? <laughs> How you doing, brother? Doing good. Doing good. Doing good. Awesome. Sorry I'm late, I- everybody. I came in fucking screaming and smoking. But uh, <laughs> we made it. We made it. Yeah, but I was just saying hi to all the amazing people in the chat. And hopefully, I, I, I'm glad that you're able to be here. Interesting movies to talk about tonight. And I'm really, I, because I, I, but I, re- I, I do want Eugene, if he can pop by, because two of these movies, you, I've got to get his take as a director. Like, I can give my take as a director, I, yeah. but yeah. There's there's two of them. And then there's one that's kind of just, I'm, I'm kind of ready to dump on. Oh, I'm so ready. To, yes. Okay. Yeah. I know which one you're talking about. Number two. I know what you're talking about. You're going to take a number two on number two. I just know it. What's up, everybody? Good to be back. I haven't seen you all in a little while. Um, been a little busy with, uh, I had a surgery a few weeks ago, so I've been recovering from that. And uh, yeah, just back on my feet, figuratively and literally. Uh, yeah. I, it was hard because I was sitting on the couch and I was like, I can't get to my computer. I had to watch JL go through these alone. He killed it, by the way. I was like, oh, man, I can't it. wait to get back there. It was, it was, <laughs> but where the fuck is everybody else? It's a good question. It's a that is a very valid question. It really, really is. You know, <laughs> it, it's and it's. I think one of the more important questions that we should be asking. You know, like you know, do aliens exist? Is the universe infinite? Where the fuck is the rest of the crew? <laughs> Where in the will world they be answered? There? We have no idea. <laughs> uh, no, but it is good. Good to see everybody. Good to see it's you. Excellent uh, to have I you hope back everything's on. Doing, doing well. I'm glad you're recovering. You're recovering pretty well from the surgery, right? Yeah, yeah, it went pretty well. Um, long story short, broke a small bone in my foot that just refused to heal. It was tearing up one of my tendons, so they had to go mm-hmm. in and take the just remove the bone out of my foot. And so now I'm kind of learning how to walk on that again without falling over. <laughs> Believe it or not, you need every single one of those bones in your feet to balance, right? They're very important. Your your toes too. You know, it's yep. surprising how important your toes are. Yep, they'll know? throw you off. Yeah, and yeah. I, learned, I, I learned that when I when I saw that they actually made shoes that are special they have like inserts in them that actually can compensate for where your toe should be so that awesome. yeah it's really really funky that they specialized shoes in order to compensate for it so you have like the full thing so that you can actually get get your balance right so it's weird you know <laughs> it is it's totally weird it's yeah and that's is i've been it? compensating on one side of my foot for so long that when i could finally kind of lean back over on the other side it, it was like hold on this doesn't feel right um, and they also, there's some nerve damage in my foot, so I can't feel half of my big toe. So it's just, it's a whole wonky situation. But yeah, slowly but surely, we'll get back there. You just reminded me, like, when I had surgery on my neck, and when I came out of it, you know, like they were, we were doing all the post-op and everything. It was like, so I wanted, so the doctor was like, so I want to let you know, you're going to have some numbness over on this side. You, you, it was like, yeah, he was like, I, I can't feel anything. It was like, it was like from like the middle of my, from my, like the midline of my face down to like the, the, almost my shoulder. It's like, it's like, why is it? It's like, it's like numb. It's like, he was like not coming back. He's like, well, when we were cauterizing in there after we, you know, did the removal, then we were doing some cauterizing. I glanced the median nerve that runs oh, along nice. that runs along that i glanced it with the electric cauterizer <laughs> and so whoops so when i t- tapped it it kind of like it so that's going to be number it took damn near two years for yeah. all the feeling to come back and it was so freaky because after like six months i'm like 
I guess it's just numb, you know, forever this is just now. how I live now. It's just how I live now. I just I can't feel the section of my face, but then it started to come back. But then I would get like cold spots. Like I would get cold. Like it would like all of a sudden, like the section of my face would be cold. It's like, this is so weird that it would be like warm. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Nerve damage is so funky. I got to ask you, uh, is, it, is it foggy down where you are? Well, it's been so foggy for the last three days. So yeah. So I work, um, I work out in Capel. Um, so I probably shouldn't put that on the internet, but, um, <laughs> and so I have to leave there and head back to where I'm at. And it's, it's about, you know, it's a good drive. So when I'm getting ready to leave and I look outside and I was like, okay, it's getting foggy. You should probably hit the road. By the time I made it outside to the parking garage, you couldn't see outside of the parking garage and the parking garage was getting covered in fog. So I had to go up to the third floor's parking garage by myself. It's dead quiet because of the fog and fogs rolling into the parking garage. I'm like, yep, this this tracks for, for how things are going. So, no, it was it was it was insane. Driving through the the cities in just absolute dense fog was it was nuts. Yeah, you always wonder. Before, you, you always wonder if you're going to wind up needing. Me. Yeah, you you always wonder if uh, when it gets like that, you find yourself in your car. You always wonder if it's going to turn into uh, uh, an end of the movie scenario where it's just like, man, I hope I have enough bullets. What I <laughs> checking the clip, like, yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're, we're good. good. <laughs> But apparently it's foggy all over the place, like Stephen King missed style. So, yep, definitely. Um, let me say, make sure we got everybody here. Nemo813, good to see you, says it's just the Coyotes jail. Just keep telling yourself that. Yeah, I will keep telling myself that. Good to see you, John Monahan. Thanks so much for uh, hanging out. I saw that. Said, What's up, JL? Um, let me see who else we got. Um, real quick. Ooh, see I, if see, I, can I see this. name. <laughs> Alex, I meant you lost your hat. No, oh, it's right here. got it. Cool. Oh, he still got his hat. Yeah. Oh, and thank you, Rodan name who gifted five more memberships to the Army of the Dead. So welcome, Brooke McLimond, Lori Marie, Insane Angel, Armageddon's Fire, and Gosh of Heckfire have all become members of the Army of the Dead. Thank you so much, Rodan name Very generous. We do appreciate that support. Yes, Eugene Juice's Rooster, been a day or three. Been, yeah, we've been yeah. a week or three. So it's been, yeah. a, been a while. It's been what? It's been about a month, I guess. I, was, I don't what know. The, Time flies when you're sitting on a couch with nothing else to do. Alex is getting the power of He-Man hair. This Travis <laughs> actually just I actually just cut like like an inch and a half off because it was getting a little. I, I think he, I think it's getting a little a messianic man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My boss looked at me the other day and she's like, "Getting Jesus vibes today." Just <laughs> like, gonna be like, just gonna walk in whenever you walk in. Whenever you walk on, just be like. Yeah. <laughs> come come to me <laughs> just, or just walk you with a loaf of bread just start throwing pieces at him body of, body of me body of me body of alex me. you can't drink wine in the middle of a work day it's not it's my blood man uh. oh crazy crazy all right let me see make sure we got everybody else let me see oh brooke lyman asked what bone I had a Jones fracture, and the ER nurses told me that there was absolutely no way I broke my foot and drove to the ER. I was 100% broken. So what bone did you break? Do you know? It was a it was an excision of the tibial sesamoid, which is kind of like, think kneecap. Your kneecap is a sesamoid. Um, and there's two of them at the ball of your foot that kind of, they help with leverage when you're walking and balance. And uh, apparently about seven months ago, I cracked mine, and I, I have no idea how. Like, I mean, it. It started hurting back in May, and then I, I just didn't do anything about it because, you know, I'm stupid and stubborn. And so I walked on it for a long time, and eventually it got to the point where mentally I was having a problem because 
it hurt all the time and I couldn't stop thinking about the pain. So I was like, all right, fine. I go in and he's like, so how'd you do this? I was like, I, existing? I don't know. <laughs> and so we tried a bunch of stuff and it didn't work. And so they went in to take it out and come to find out that also one of my nerves that's supposed to be the size of uh, just like a piece of hair is like swollen up to the size of uh, like a pasta noodle. And so that's giving wow. me grief too. And that could have been from um, the bone poking into it. And my tendon was all tore up. And so it was just a mess. I have no idea how it happened. I, it, yeah. So it was the, it was a sesamoid bone in the uh, bottom of my foot. Damn. Ah, plot it's, hole you know, it's one of those things. It's one of those yeah. things. You just, you don't know how it's much life. you're using your foot until you can't fucking use your foot. That that's the issue with my back. So yeah. like you don't realize it and it's, and it's wild how that gets, it's literally just like one section of muscles in my back that if they, if they get strained or if I torque them, then I'm down and you don't realize how necessary just this one band of area in, in the, in your lower back is for even just standing, you know, right. just how, how, how important it is. But yeah, my, my back's got the same way. Right. Uh, plot holes popped in says you got no one here. Yo, I had no one here. I started solo and, and Alex joined me unlike yeah. you. And then he said, Alex, you look like Chad Kroger. And I know that was supposed to be an insult, but thank you. <laughs> a little like Chad Kroger, a little, a little like Chad Kroger. <laughs> Not at all, but okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, let me see. Let me see. Um, let me see who else we got here. Uh, let me see. Yep. Yeah, uh, plot has been busy for a minute. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Look at this phone. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. Sir Cab says, I thought Eugene was supposed to be the sex symbol. Ooh. <laughs> Smells like teen spirit. I, I don't put a hat on. Don't put a hat on one time. And, um who else we got in here? I see Operation Free World is here. It's good to see Operation Free World. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, Paul says, wait, Alex broke his kneecap? Doing what? No, but listen to the story. Listen to the story and get your mind out of the gutter. Johnny's here, but not here. But not here. It's like we're in Wayne's basement, but that's not Wayne's basement. (laughs) Dave's not here, man. (laughs) Pull over. I can't pull over any farther. He's pulled over. (laughs) All right, I think I saw everybody. Uh, I think I've gotten uh, so if I miss somebody saying hi to everybody, I do apologize. But I think I, I think I said hi to everybody. I think I, I don't think I missed anybody. But if I did, let me know. Let me know if I missed somebody. I think I got everyone. So welcome everybody. Thank you all so much for hanging out. I appreciate everyone being here tonight in the live chat. But Jiju um, says no thanks. Look like Chad Kroger. I'll take his bank account. <laughs> true, true that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dankity's yeah. butthole. He's got to get back to work. Just have fun with the TP9000. I don't think we're going to need it for, for this one. I mean, the, the bad one is quite obvious. So, but we will get into that. We absolutely will. So, let me ask you a question real quick. So, I was scrolling through some, some horror shit, and uh, there's a movie that popped up that stood out that I haven't seen before. Um, and it was called The Loved Ones. Are you familiar with this? Yes, I am. Australian horror film. It was an Australian horror film that it, it looked like it might have been extra brutal. So I didn't know if you had seen it before. Yes. Uh, a few years ago. Yeah. And okay. uh, so that was about the girl with the party. And yeah. yeah. So yeah, I don't okay. want to spoil too much for those who haven't seen it, but it is, particularly is it worth brutal. watching. It is worth watching. There's a number okay. of Australian of Australian horror films because that's what I love about Australian horror. Yeah, it's Australian willing horror. to go. It's willing to go like the full, like not just not just Wolf Creek, but you've also got the Furies. Um, uh, the loved ones is a really, really good one. There's a real, some really, really solid, uh, 
solid ones out there that are particularly violent, particularly brutal. Uh, Mike71 is here. Good to see you, Mike71. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight. Appreciate you being here. All right. Well, you like to say it, uh, Alex. You haven't said it in a long time. Do you want to say it? Yeah. This is a podcast about fucking horror movies. Let's talk about some horror movies. Let's definitely do that. Let's definitely do that. So, um, because you're here, and I did the intro, then I'll let you. I'll let you kick it off, man. Oh man, we got what we got it first. Shit, shit. <laughs> Hold on, let me pull up my notes here. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, this movie. Oh, we sorry, start I'm sorry. Out. We got oh, no, Just oh, while you're pulling it up, while you're while you're pulling it up. Thank you, NANA, for gifting five more memberships to the Army of the Dead. Um, let me see who just joined. Who just joined? Fred Knott. Healing Time, J-Verse, Lexian, Autistic Shill, thanks so much for being here. Uh, all right, thank you uh, so much. And uh, you are now members of the Army of the Dead. So appreciate that. Very generous. Thank you, N-A-N-A. You rock. Three, four, five. And yeah, Autistic Lexian, J-Verse, Healing Time, and Fred Knotts. Awesome. Welcome. All right, cool. Back to you. <laughs> back, to, back to you, Jesus. Um, back all to right, you. we're going to start, start this out with... Uh, <laughs> With a uh, 80s flick. I fucking love 80s films. Oh, hell um, yeah. This one's called Venom. Came out January 29th, 1982. We got a trailer? We do. Have you seen the new Terror Tube? No, not yet. There's a new Shall one? Then you're going to enjoy this. One. But, oh my God, uh, I'm so hey, excited. Good to see you, Dib Dib. Thanks so much for being here. And let's queue up the Terror Tube. <laughs> Whatever you fear. all right so this film was directed by pierce haggard and toby hooper written by alan schofield and it is starring klaus kinski (laughs) oliver reed nicole williams uh williamson sarah miles sterling uh hayden cornelia sharp susan george lance holcomb and then a whole bunch of other people don't really matter this movie because you don't see them for very long this movie has everything it's got like shitty police work and snakes and Klaus Kinski, and it's like a bad Home Alone remake. <laughs> um, but essentially, some German terrorists try to kidnap a 10-year-old boy and get locked into this house, and this snake is on loose, terrorizing the terrorist. Oh, how the table turns. So th- this oh, is... the, the okay. tables. <laughs> so th- this, movie is, this movie is fascinating. Um, I want to say, I want to say that it, it's really... The, this is one of those ones where the film itself is not as entertaining as the story behind it. So ultimately, Venom is kind of like a character-driven, uh, tra- trapped in a place with a deadly animal. You just, you know, horror to horror film. The left-handed Jedi is asking, where's Sam L? That's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> definitely would, these would goddamn definitely... snakes in this goddamn apartment in London. <laughs> so, but I found I found this really, really fascinating because... The film itself is pretty simplistic. It's just people. It's it's a number of characters uh, trapped in a single location with a deadly snake. And that's pretty much all it is. And while the setup is a little bit, I think storyline wise, all of the, while it's it's kind of a slow burn leading up to it, and you get the establishment of all the characters, Oliver Reed's character, Klaus Kinski's character, uh, a number of the other uh, really really talented actors. You know, just a fantastic cast across the board. Did you know? In a very small role before they do the break, the break the, through the wall scene when they're setting it up, when the cop comes in like the Kool Aid Man and he shoots Oliver <laughs> Reed. That whole sequence, okay, led up to it. The, the actor who plays Bricktop in Snatch was in this movie. What? Uh, he was what? only in there what? for a few scenes, yeah, but it was, it was like an early film that was like you know early on in his filmography. But I was like, hey, I know that guy. Oh, He's like, okay. you know, 
So it was wild seeing, seeing you know, a number of English <laughs> actors that I'm familiar with. Um, but otherwise, it's kind of fun and fascinating, but only because of the talent that was behind it. Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski definitely carry the film, and but there's all, all you know, all kind of great stuff. But the story behind this movie is really what's more important. Now, but I will give them props for this: using a legitimate fucking black mamba in shooting. Legit. Because <laughs> I, I, I was like, okay, because so we've seen so many. Like we like we watched um, uh, another one. It was like Tarantulas, the Deadly Cargo. A few weeks ago, yep. and in Tarantula's Deadly Cargo, they're talking about Brazilian <laughs> wandering spiders. And but every time they showed a spider, it was a fucking uh, tarantula. It was like a like a red legged tarantula, and I was like, yeah. "That's a, one of the most docile spiders on the planet." And oh no, it's dangerous and like this. So I thought they did, they didn't do that with this one. Legitimate no. fucking black mamba that they utilized on set. And although I, I could you know, the scenes when the the, the mom because mama is, is a freaky looking snake it's big and when it rears up and it can lunge at people but there were a couple scenes when the snake is fucking flying at people it's like ah <laughs> i was like thought it was a little little much uh somebody brought it up earlier is like yeah was, uh sir cabs is 1982 killing horror tropes and herpetological facts for 40 years yes they made this black mamba out to be like this mass murdering thing it's just it like deliberately kills like all the animals in the kid's room before it goes to seek out the people and kill them as well, which I found kind of like, that's absolutely it's, silly. It's just the fact that he has this snake in the house is like, hold on, what the fuck? And then you're like, <laughs> and it's a simple what? mistake, you know, is it just, it, you know, they mix the snakes up at the pet shop, at the exotic pet shop. And because they just but, have black mambas at the fucking exotic right. pet shop, but okay. <laughs> But yeah, but no, the, it is really cool that they, they had the real one in there. Because it's like, you know, it, if you don't know what it is, you don't know what it is. It just looks kind of, if you don't know what it is, it's not that intimidating. But when you actually read up on them and actually you understand how deadly these snakes actually are, that's impressive. It's impressive that they were messing around with that on a, on a movie set in the 80s. To see how many people were high as shit on cocaine while they were, yeah. you know, how many people got bit and didn't even get affected by it. Gigi says that was bold, stupid as fuck, but bold. Yes, it was. It absolutely was. Uh, there was actually at the end of the film, at the end, you know, before the credits, there's actually a big thank you to the uh, to the, uh, the the group that came in and handled the snake and allowed them to utilize to safely utilize a black mamba on that on that set in that particular on the, in that little one brownstone. So, yeah. but uh, Sir Kevin says on set is doing a lot of work here. So. Yeah, he would hate this one because of the snake. That that epic fucking like, I loved that that finishing sequence when Klaus Kinski is like ah on the balcony with the snake. And he's like ah, and he's like trying to shoot the fucking thing with the deal, and then the snipers get him, and then he shoots the snake. And oh, that shit was so fucking epic. But this particular one, it's the the storyline behind this. Now, the one thing that I found I find really fascinating is the fact that the this movie stars Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski. Two at the time, at the time, two of the most notoriously mercurial and volatile actors of their of their time period. You've got, and I'm and I'm just I'm wondering what that set would be like when you've got Klaus Kinski, who is notoriously cold and yep. very intense and just very off-putting in, in kind of like the way he approaches things. And then you've got Oliver Reed, who is this boorish drunk who is like probably was not sober at any moment within this movie because that was his reputation but both phenomenal actors but the fact that but he was also very much a man's man very macho 
and he would fuck with you and like break your balls in order to like you know get a rise out of you and, he, and when he didn't get a rise he'd do it even more and he was unrelenting and imagining those two personalities sharing as much screen time as they do for these shots and how that pulled off but that was i think that would just be i can't even imagine that working environment probably what led to toby hooper you know coming off of this movie i would say <laughs> literally just like nah dude i'm done but no, you're you're absolutely right. It probably lended a hand to a lot of the because there was a lot of like character tension in this film. There was a lot of tension uh that you could feel. And I think I think that probably lended itself to that aspect being being having yeah. Because Klaus Kinski, who I, I could only imagine Oliver Reed just trying to like get one over on him or trying to get him to react. And Klaus is like, like, nope. And he'd hold out. Alvarez would keep going. There's a fucking black mamba on set. Like that's just gonna be the most intense situation to be in. Like Sarah Miles is over there. All those reactions that she has because she's over dramatic in all of the reactions in the whole movie, which is great. But like she's probably just letting out a lot of tension through all that. You know this. Like oh, okay, I can breathe now. I wasn't breathing. That's not me gasping because of the snake. It's because I thought Koskinski was going to stab Oliver in the throat. But okay, the two with that. Okay, when he's like wielding that shotgun around, and <laughs> the two of them, it's like because his like his character would go off like in a heartbeat, which is like screaming at him like that. I was like, okay, it's either, watching these two kind of bounce off of one another in this like in this little like apartment. I would have to be. I would be kind of. It reminded me of sequences in the thing. Because in, on that that one, you have a whole bunch of guys, and I don't know what it is about getting a whole bunch of like male actors together. You put them all into one small space, and the thing was very very similar to that. Keith uh, Keith David also has a bit of a reputation. When he was younger, had a bit of a reputation as well as being a bit of a hothead. And he would there were sequences when you see Keith David like when he does something explosively, like explosive physicality, everyone would kind of like back the fuck away. And like yeah. get like so get out of it because you because he yeah, I mean he'll just he'll just go for it and you just get out of his way and let him do it. So or it was kind of like Predator where everybody's kind of like we have onset bodyguards to protect the cast from each other because so much testosterone and so much shit going on. <laughs> you know, like, you know protect us from, from from Sonny Landon, protect us from him. But I loved I I enjoyed this one solely for what they brought to it. And obviously, all this if if you are a snake fan. There's going to be a ton of shit. I see a lot of people in the live chat pointing out that the snake shit in this film is not like, it's just not accurate by any measure. While they did use a black mamba for filming, they legitimately did. And the sequence, I mean, that's like, I was, I was very surprised by that. The fact it's not the most dangerous snake in the world. It is a very dangerous snake, but it's not the most dangerous snake in the world. It is, it can't fly at people, although it does drop out of trees. It doesn't like leap and fly at people like it did. And like, curving through the air like a fucking like it's air like it's a fucking flying snake it doesn't do any of that shit so but i found i just what makes this one is the characters in them of themselves and plus this uh, venom is important because i think as a horror film is it was one of two films that toby hooper was doing at the time or that he attempted to do during that period in his career where he, they they both failed and there's a and it, it said the reports are that toby hooper had a nervous breakdown due to creative differences and had to leave the production then was replaced by Pierce Haggard. <clears throat> now, but from what Pierce said in his autobiography was that it was the first AD on the set, it was the first AD working there that was having difficulty with Toby and those complications led to Toby getting stressed out. And when Toby got stressed out, the first AD 
went around behind his back to the studio and stabbed him in the back and had him replaced. And so they simply said creative differences to kind of like protect that and then brought in Pierce Haggard, who then came in and was just like, this is fucking chaotic as shit. Uh, nothing that they ever now, now Pierce Haggard said that, that nothing that Toby shot was used. Virtually none of his footage was used that he walked in with 10 days preparation. He's like, okay, I'm taking over a movie. I've got 10 days to prepare for this walked in. And that was what he walked into. So what we got was a production set, a production that Toby set up from script all the way through pre-production. He shot some, but then they then they just dropped all that, brought in Piers, and Piers basically walked in with 10 days prep for all of Toby Hooper's six months prep to make the movie. And that's why the movie kind of uh, fucked up in that respect. Oh, first AD is uh, the first assistant director. First assistant director apparently had real problems with Toby Hooper, and there was just a lot of difficulties in between the two of them. And that's what led him to kind of like, so, you know, like kind of like backstab Toby Hooper and get him off the project. And then they brought in peers and then they got the movie done. So there was all kinds of communication issues on this shit. And not to mention that kind of chaos behind the scenes is going to translate to probably Kinski and Oliver Reed and lead oh, to sure. some real chaos. With the, with the tension that was already probably on set, you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but the tension that was already there. And then having that dynamic, that movie could have flopped real hard if Toby didn't walk. I wouldn't doubt that he, you know, they probably knew right off the bat it wasn't going to work and and had already been, and it works. And for, you know, for that actually happening, and for all that happening on set, it actually turned out pretty good. It's, you know, it's, it's not the greatest movie in the world, but it was it was a good movie. The character dynamic was awesome. The cinematography in this movie was great. Just using just kind of like the dreary London background is um you know as uh, using it to the cinematic advantage was uh, it was really shot really well i thought yeah I, I really enjoyed what toby had set up with like toby's whole go premise is like having this particular style brownstone so that when you're in there and you've got these these phenomenally huge personalities and these actors and then utilizing the architecture to itself as as very much to uh, to to put the character in there that these characters are now trapped in not only a small space, but in a tight and narrow space and using the angles of the brownstone itself, using the angles of the, uh, the walls and the angles of the staircase in order to convey this sense of disorientation that this would that, you know, and being able to do that plays off the fact that you know, allows us to sink into the fact that the plan has gone awry. Initially it was supposed to be a kidnapping, get in, get the kid, get out, hold him for ransom get the money from the rich parents and then piss off. And then you'll try to escape with the money. But now that everything's off, now we, we have this, this fantastic kind of like spiraling, almost kind of like, you know, weird angles and the angles get inside the apartment. The angles get even more and more off as things, you know, spiral out of control, starting with when Susan George, the amazing Susan George, who is the first casualty, when you saw that, and I love that <laughs> set, I will say this, that setup was brilliant, which is like, okay, okay, open the box like this. And then the kid's like, and she's not even looking, and the kid just opens the crate, and he looks inside. <laughs> I'm like, holy shit! And she turns around face first right into that shit. There were some good moments there, and then of course, I uh, I would say it's the characters that 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 sell this one. It was really really enjoyable. I just wish I wish I could have been a fly on the wall of that set and to see what the that fuck was going nuts. on. Yeah, <laughs> and of course. Um, I also have to mention Michael Goff is in this one as well. It was Alfred in the Batman films. He shows up as a snake wrangler. Towards the towards the <laughs> very end, like he was in there for a few shots, 
and then um i can't remember the other uh, the, the other actor's name the uh the guy who was fucking um uh the, the guy who played brick top i can't remember his name specifically off the top of my head who had a who had a bit role in there really really quick and then it's of Bricktop. course that's what that's what his name is yeah that's what his name is and then john <laughs> forbes robertson as well who was uh who, who played sergeant nash in the film and he was in there for a brief moment as well but john forbes robertson was the only other actor to play a dracula for hammer horror other than christopher lee huh so the, the cast the cast that toby put together for this film is phenomenal you know, I mean, even the bit yeah. parts are all extremely talented people. Toby cast it perfectly. Now, originally, this is now this is fast fascinating. You remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Of course. So, Raiders of the Lost Ark. One of the uh, was uh, uh, Tote. Um, the uh, what, I can't remember. I want to remember his name. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. Yes, Arnold Tote. Uh, who was the uh, oh, was he, oh, Arnold Ernesto? Yes, uh, played by Ronald Lacey. Okay, so Ronald Lacey played. Um, I what was his rank? It was like Sturman. It was like Sturman Fuhrer or something like that. But he was a Nazi, and uh, you know, famous used the black hat. There's the melty scene like this. Now, originally, um, that role was not supposed to go to him. Steven Spielberg had envisioned Klaus Kinski in the role of Arnold Tote. Okay, see, that would have been fucking great. Okay, because of that, because of his, you know, the, the way he talks, you can hear it in his voice. Right. You, know, you can see the similarity there. So originally, Tote was supposed to be played by Klaus Kinski, but Klaus Kinski, in his autobiography, stated that he read the script for Raiders and thought it was, in his own words, moronically stupid. <laughs> and he passed on Raiders to do venom hey (laughs) if it's not about the money at that point then you know if that's if you're not feeling you're not feeling it (laughs) It went on to be one of the most successful films ever but um (laughs) and you know what though i think toth i think toth played a really good role in that oh ronald lacy was amazing he was like shoots him shoots him (laughs) you know i i love what he brought to that now, Klaus yeah. Kinski would have been fascinating in that role to see what kind of energy he brought to that. Not to mention the stories that we could have gotten from, you know, Klaus Kinski being on set with Harrison Ford because Harrison Ford is notoriously laid back, very chill dude, doesn't take anything really like overtly serious. And then Klaus Kinski like, oh, Klaus Kinski, oh, you know, oh, I have you know, to see those, to hear those two kind of like going off one another would have been hilarious story not to mention him working with uh fucking you know be on set with spielberg and shit that would have been that would have been wild but uh but i found that to be fascinating that he passed on that he passed on fucking raiders of lost ark in order to do the movie venom and apparently there, it upset like there was a lot of craziness um oh, tony regime. oh tony regime good to see you bud thanks so much for being here tonight and I just found that to be uh, to be intriguing that. And then, of course, that uh, there was a lot of crisis there because they brought in Klaus Kinski because they originally he was supposed to be like this kind of like creepy Nazi guy. And they really right. wanted to push the Nazi elements of it. it was like, oh, wow, because, you know, whatever. And then it was uh, Haggard that actually changed up a little bit in order to really convey him as kind of like, yeah, he's a creepy German dude. There may be some ties there, but he wanted to limit that kind of like, you know, er- overt Nazi references in that. So. Right. But yeah, this I mean it's an interesting movie 
in that respect. And I think interesting because of its, uh, its connection to Toby Hooper's filmography in that it was one of his two failed films in which he came on, became overwhelmed or something happened. And then he had to pull out. Someone else had to come in. It almost happened on Poltergeist, you know, thanks yep. to, uh, but thanks to Steven Spielberg, Spielberg came in and kind of saved that movie. It almost happened there. And then, but it happened on two other films. It was a uh, Venom and a crime thriller that he was doing. It was supposed to be like his, he, Hooper became fascinated with kind of like the, the downtown London area. And he wanted to shoot movies there. Like he loved it. And so this was supposed to be one of them was Venom. And then there was another one I can't remember the name of, but both of them, you know, he wound up not actually finishing because it was just like too chaotic. And I guess he, yeah, I guess he, I don't know about stress level. I guess he, he couldn't handle it much. I hate to speak ill. I'm not, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but uh, if, uh, who knows? I mean, Texas Chainsaw maybe took it out of him, you know? Maybe. <laughs> I, it's, you know, some people have a hard time recovering from that. Could be it. Sometimes you have a hard time recovering from those those big films like that, or, you know, particularly gruesome films. Maybe he had a bad experience on set somewhere else and it was triggering him. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it kind of sucks because, yeah, it's there could have been it could have been something different. It was there for sure. But it's interesting that I mean, it's it's kind of wild to think that that Toby Hooper fell kind of prey to uh, the politics in I, I would say in British filmmaking. I'm going to say this is a British French films, British American production. But the idea that James Cameron ran into the same shit. Um, ran into right. difficulties with his with his uh, with the uh, the English uh, crew that or the British crew that he had when he was doing Aliens, and that yeah. they almost revolted against him, and there was just this clash between you know his his vision of what he had and you know, how much they trusted him or not, and then of course their own idea of how a film production was supposed to go, and they almost derailed Aliens, and luckily he was able to turn that around and gave us one of the best sci-fi horror films out there, and that Toby Hooper kind of fell prey to it as well. Um, I, I, I mean, wish there was more that Toby didn't speak about it very often. Uh, didn't speak, I mean, didn't speak about it much in his own stuff, kind of like just moved on, did his own thing. But, uh, but yeah, it would, I think it, it's so interesting to think about what could have been different if Toby had stayed with the production or if they, if they, and, or, you know, and really utilize the actors as he wanted them to utilize. Maybe, I don't know if that, I, I think that the elements were there to make a really fantastic film. Real snake, real legit dangerous snake, charismatic, you know, powerful actors, really interesting set, and just all these cool elements that came together to tell this kind of like this horror, this horror story tracked in there about these people dealing with the snake and everything. And ah, oh, it just kind of fell flat. And even Peter's Haggard will say that, you know, it, it kind of like fell on its face because the elements were there to make something really brilliant. And it just didn't happen, unfortunately. Yeah, like I said, it was there, but it just never. It, yeah. it was midline. It was mediocre. Um, but it, being, you know, being the eighties, it definitely had some hype to live up to around other films of the time, and it just kind of went unnoticed because, yeah, it, it could have been better. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, since we're here and we're talking about it, I think uh, maybe I'll pull up the CTA on this because that's something I'd like to know from the audience. Uh, do you think Toby Hooper could have done it better? If he would have stuck around, if he was at, you know, his 100%, do you think he would have been able to make this pop a little bit better? Do you think he could make it a little more striking? <laughs> Let us know down in the comments. 
I think it would have been interesting, you know, if Hooper. Uh, that's it. See, that's interesting to say. To think about if you know, with Toby Hooper and Toby Hooper style, which we see evident in a number. Of, like obviously, the guy who gave us the Toolbox Murders uh, remake, mm-hmm. the guy who gave us uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, this feels this is very, very much a different kind of beat, but I think his style would have lent a little bit better and he would have utilized the snake a little a, a bit more to a more horrific yeah. effect. And I think it yeah. would have been it wouldn't have felt so procedural because it was Piers Haggard, who is a very if you look at his filmography, is very kind of like a by the numbers formulaic kind of director. He's like, this is what you do. This is how you go like that. And he took the story in, I think, the easiest way possible. Instead of it was still creative and some good smart shots, some good smart cinematography in there. But I think ultimately Toby would have lent a little more, uh, a little more creativity to the horror elements of the film and utilized the snake to a better effect instead of being such a kind of formulaic procedural kind of uh, horror film. It comes off more thriller than horror, and that's where I think it would have differed if Toby Hooper stayed on set. It would be more horror, it'd be more grotesque as opposed to more thriller-like. Because it was, it was kind of a mixed thriller-horror Right. Um, film. Let's see, uh, some werewolf, good to see you. Some werewolf, thanks so much for hanging out tonight. Appreciate you being here. Extra day as well, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. And Sir Kevin says, I agree that Toby could have made it better if they'd included his input, but it would have been a dramatically different movie. Agreed. And, and yeah, Pierce absolutely. Haggard himself, yeah, Pierce Haggard himself agrees with you. He says the film would have been, you know, demonstrably different if they had Toby continued and they ran with that. But, you know, just the creativity, creative issues behind their politics or whatever it might be. The fact that Pierce Haggard picked up that baton with 10 days of prep for production to walk into a set where you already know you're walking with Klaus Kinski and Oliver Reed and you've got an AD, a first AD willing to kind of like, you know, uh, run around behind you to you know to get you in the back. It was looking for that opportunity. That's a dangerous thing to go. So you know, go in there. Don't take any risks. You've got the pieces. Just put them together, and you know that's it. So that's pretty much it. Oh yeah. So, but yeah, I'll give that. So let us know down in the comments below at weekendhorrorgmail.com. Could Toby Hooper have done it better if he'd stayed with the movie? I'd be very curious to hear what people think. I really do. All right. Let's move on to our next one. What do you think? This is the one I, I yeah, because we talked about the we talked about the in, the the inspiration behind this one before on the show, and we we all loved it. So, but now we're going to talk about uh, the Uninvited, which released January thirtieth, two thousand nine, and technically a remake of uh, a tale of two, the Korean horror film, a tale, a tale of two, two sisters. sisters, right? Yeah. Which we talked about on the show a couple seasons ago. But now let's dive into the remake. So let's check out the Terror Two. What do you think? What do you think of the Terror Two? That's awesome, brutal. (laughs) So yeah, but I I set it up so it's like it's like flipping through channels to get to the trailer. No, I like it. Yeah. So here we go. Cue up the Terror Two. All right. That was the trailer for The Uninvited, uh, directed by the Guard Brothers and screenplay by Craig Rosenberg, Doug Miro, Carla Bernard. And based on a tale of two sisters by Kim Ji Woon, starring Elizabeth Banks, Emily Browning, Ariel Kebel, and David Stratham. Um, Strathairn, sorry, Strathairn. And uh, the film, I mean, they, I pretty much gave it away with that. The film is a remake of A Tale of Two Sisters, and uh, it pretty much follows that. The uh, Essentially, if you haven't watched it, uh, a young girl gets out of a mental asylum, returns home after spending 10 months there after a... a, a a self uh, a self unsubscribe attempt and <laughs> there's certain words we can't use 
and uh, I like that one. That's that's clever. <laughs> and so uh, returns to find that the uh, the woman, the the nurse, the living nurse who was taking care of her mother when she was sick before her mother died, has kind of like become the dad's new girlfriend and is kind of like moving into the family. And uh, through a result of what appears to be ghostly intervention or some supernatural events, the uh, the young woman begins to believe that the caretaker is not who she says. She is and may have been responsible for her mother's death, but things get far wonkier from there because unreliable narrators being what they are, she's actually the villain of the piece. Um, but yeah, the the the, the story hey, itself. It. <laughs> it, I, I mean, I mean, the film, the film came out in the you know, like two thousand. This one came out two thousand nine. It's a remake of a fantastic Korean horror film. Tale of Two Sisters is is magnificent, and it's that's an adaptation of an actual like a Korean folk tale. Which is you know been around for you know centuries, and yeah. uh, Tale of Two Sisters was magnificent in this respect. Um, remember, there's a five year moratorium, Tang Whistle, five year moratorium <laughs> on spoilers. Okay, so if, if it's within five years, cause... if it's within five years, we won't spoil it. Okay, well we'll try not to, but if it's more than five years, we'll we'll pretty much do that. I could tell JL saw my comment by the pause in his spiel. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, uh, uh, this one, fucking hell. Okay. Let me, let me, let me just ask you this one. Okay. This is honestly, in my opinion, just another sad fucking facsimile is what this was. But what is your take on this given, given the experience there? It it was a ride because I remember I was shit. I just got out of high school and this came out. And so I was on a, a kick of movies and and this one, I was like, oh, Emily Browning. And then, then you're like, oh, it's Elizabeth Banks. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be this is gonna be a shitty movie. And you don't like starts, Elizabeth Banks? Wait, wait, wait. You don't like Elizabeth well, Banks? She, I, I don't think she does. No, I love her. She's great in, like, comedy. I just, whenever she does serious roles, I just can't take her seriously because oh. she's so fucking funny. But so it, it was like, oh, no, I don't know how to feel about this. And I went into it, and it started out, and I'm like, okay, dramatic. Okay, we're getting there. And then it just starts going left, right, left, right, left, right. And it's like, okay, halfway through, you're like, okay, I, I see what's going on. And then you're like, maybe I don't. And then you're like, no, no, it was definitely what I thought. And then, I don't know. It was it was good in the respect that the twists and turns were plenty and they weren't totally shit. They, they you know, kind of played with you a little bit, which was cool. Um, back in, what was it, 2009, um, that time period alone for movies it was hard to do that kind of stuff because everybody was doing it so seeing that and watching it go back and forth the whole movie and not just give itself away right away in my opinion i mean it might have for other people but that that something to hold on to for the whole movie is what i'm trying to get at well the kicker that got me that that like the the biggest thing the biggest failure and why this occurs like this between between eastern horror films i guess between eastern horror films and western horror films or this western take on this eastern horror film is that the general psychology of or the the difference in approach in the psychology of of the two sides is that eastern horror films really really focus on the internalization of the horror that that which is scary is coming from within and right. that and that experience and the internal experience, whereas Western horror films focus on the external experience, the things outside of your control that may be coming for you that you don't know are there. So it's about what's outside and what's inside. And because of that, there is, I found the one big killer, the one thing that, that shot this whole production in the foot 
okay, was a cinematography issue because trying to convey that internalization aspect, it comes down to an acting choice. It comes down to acting choices. The way, the reason a tale from two sisters works so well is because of the the stepmother or the mother though the woman coming in the nurse the caregiver coming in to tell you know, kind of like come in and marry the father the that whole issue right there is the way they set her up her character choices allow us to not recognize that the sister is actually an alter of the daughter that's that's what it allows us so it requires that. It requires that interaction between the daughter that's there, the daughter that's just returned home, the supposedly evil caretaker, and the sister who is supposedly there as well, but we know is not. And so those choices come down to the actress who plays the the mother, who play or who plays the the the, uh, the character, the nurse. Her interactions, her standoffishness, her like kind of coldness, as a result of her being afraid of the girl and not. But that's because we're getting we're getting the whole story from the from the young woman's perspective, internalizing what the what the woman is what this new woman is doing. That requires phenomenal acting. The problem with this is that they take that burden off in the American version, and often we see this a lot of times. They take that burden off of the actors. They put it onto the cinematographer and how they're going to frame a right. shot, and they give away the ghost when they try to showcase the 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 sister interacting with the other family members that very first sequence if you yep. watch it if you're watching close and it and i picked out and not, not just because i knew it but i because i knew it I, I knew what to look for as far as camera angles go there's a sequence at the very beginning when she says i'm going to go in and talk to dad and then she hears them arguing or she she hears her sister arguing there in the office if you look at david strathairn's eye line his, his sight lines they never go to the daughter He's right. sitting in a chair and she's yelling at him. He never reacts to her. She says something pretty mean. He doesn't even flinch. And when he turns the chair, <clears throat> he's not looking at her. All the cinematography, the cin that that one shot is what pulls the rug out from underneath you to let you know that that sister, that that girl is not actually around. She's not actually there in the scene. That's right. problematic because they don't allow for that internalization of the horror. We have to externalize everything so that we have a certain sense of, that's just the way I get how American storytelling works in that respect, because it was the simplistic and minimalism of the cinematography in the Korean version and allowing those actors to shoulder the burden of their internalization of the horrific things that are going on that help us to keep, that keep certain elements away from us. We never realize in the Korean one, unless you're familiar with the folk story, you never really are hinted that the sister is not actually there because the mother reacts to both children the exact same way. Right. Okay. And her destabilization, which makes it look like she's crazy and she's dangerous, is actually a result of her interacting with our narr with our with our narrator, which is the young girl, told the story from her perspective, but because she's unreliable. We're getting all false information. We never get that in this film. Everything is on its face. The cards are on the table. And if you watch, it's very fucking obvious. Or like Sarcasm says, you're polishing JL. I love you, but this was insanely <laughs> telegraphed. It was ab absolutely. You're right. Yeah. It was insanely telegraphed. They telegraphed all of it. I anybody with anybody who is watching the film can see just by watching the actors that that sister is not there. She's never been there. They never react to anything she says. 
She, she like, even when she pops up, they don't even like look to acknowledge her. Okay. Not even in a moment of frustration to kind of mask it <sighs> and then come back, which could, which are little simple tricks to mask that. But nope, they give away right. the ghost. They, they, for all intents and purposes, they give away the ghost. They literally give away the ghost immediately. And that's, and, I mean, I'm sorry, no, I, was about, I was about to pop off on the ending because the way they ended it pissed me the fuck off because <laughs> they, 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 they literally set it up. It's like she, oh, she's out. She's been doing all this hard work. She's snowed. Like she, she, you know, her therapist there. She, they're gonna release her. So she's going back home. And then, and then at the very fucking end, it was all they, 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 they hint that it was all her fucking plan. That this was planned all along. And it's like, but wait. the entire, like, with the whole like, you know, I was like, you know, you know, how are you doing? It's like I'm good. I, you know, I finished what I started. Wait, so you did the whole shit. So why all the fear and the uncertainty and the uh, like, you know, the uh, and you, you know, I don't remember and you know my memory's all fucked up and all that shit. Why? Uh, yeah, you know, like it, it just all of a sudden clicked. No, okay, maybe she was crazy the whole time. Fine, but like you know, you kind of get. I don't know. They did. They played into it. And I think it's hard because if you're gonna if you're gonna direct this movie, you got to know that it's been done before, and right. you got to know that some people are gonna know that it's been done before. So I, you would think that you would be a little more careful with those those aspects with big plot holes <laughs> since Johnny's not here, but it, yeah, it, they do. And I guess now that you mentioned it, it's cause I noticed it. I didn't notice how bad it was until you, you started <laughs> railing on it, but <laughs> it, it, they, they don't, she's never acknowledged. And yeah, I don't know. Tale of two sisters was so good. And then I, I saw, um, I saw this before I saw Tale of two sisters, but the, uh, the dad pissed me off. He would played he oh, played David's way too <laughs> he played way too well into the the piece of shit dad not paying attention to his kid and that's I don't know mad most of the movie because of that and then you find out it wasn't him you know but yeah it it was it was twisty turny the jump scares were terrible but the rest of it I mean cinematically it was it was alright um but now, cinematography yeah. cinematography wise I'll give it that the film is shot very very it had, well like it but that's, money, it's, it's like, dream it's got dreamworks money behind it yeah. the production itself was was really really streamlined you could tell that there's right. a lot of shots that are really good I found that some of the some of the lighting choice some of the sound choices really really solid some of them were pretty obvious like you know oh hear a noise oh ghost jump scares were all telegraphed that was the you know, throwaway but I did enjoy uh, I did particularly enjoy what I liked the most is how the guard brothers framed a lot of the sequences a lot of those moments where they where, where the where the sweeping kind of camera moments where the the camera leads up to what you're supposed to be seeing or conveying emily browning's uh or the you know the 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 daughter anna's um kind of like uh experience there in the moment i do like how they do some of that some of the the some of the framing and some of the shots are really really pretty really really beautiful i love the area where they shot that was a yeah, fantastic area yeah the, 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 the coastal the coastal area is fantastic and the light, lighting, sound, all of it worked really, really well. I will say, and I will agree with you on this. I think Elizabeth Banks was an attempt. I think that the idea of bringing Elizabeth Banks in was a good idea, but I don't think it should have been Elizabeth Banks. Is right. that I think that there the part of that physicality, part of be a part of that physicality in playing that role as being you're you're portraying a character that is being misinterpreted by the by the by the protagonist or by the by the by the protagonist themselves or the narrator of the story. We have Emily Anna's perspective of her of the step of the soon to be stepmother. 
Anna's perspective is skewed. She is interpreting everything that her daughter, that, that the uh, the would be stepmother is doing in a negative way. She's misinterpreting everything she's doing. That's important because it should allow for the reveal towards the end. Elizabeth Banks, as much as I and I love her in comedy, she's fucking hilarious, and I think that her that her place in comedy, she's perfect as like this this the, the crazy crazy hot chick who is also like goofy goofy physical funny. She's perfect in that. Loved her in Slither. Loved her in uh, you know uh, Zach and Mary. Love you know the, a lot of the stuff. I've, uh, I think she had some problems as a director. The whole Charlie's Angels fiasco was not good, but <laughs> but nonetheless, as a performer, she's yeah. great. But her ability of when she was trying to convey that character aspect in the way to say, Ooh, is she actually evil? It comes off way too harsh, you know? And there was like legitimately was like, well, hang on a sec. Why the overt sounding threatening, you know, why like the Pearl sequence, why the, what, you know, the, and then her use of like her use of profanity went away from the husband from away from her father. You know, to dive into, I was like, oh, because I'm hip and cool and young with the kids and I can use, I can use uh, bad language too. It's all way too telegraph. It's, uh, it's way too forced and telegraphed. You know, uh, know, I'm not going to say, I I don't think for all her talent, Elizabeth Banks could try. And I'm glad she didn't try to copy the performance of um, Yum uh, Yum Young Ha who played uh, Yoon Ju in the original television to take that performance, try to copy it over. That would have been a terrible mistake because even though I think David Strathairn did copy a bit from the dad, no, that kind of aloof, sure. absent-minded kind of like, you know, he's there, but he's not really all there because he's still dealing with the trauma and shit. It's like a lack of empathy and it, yeah. it, it comes off more just brash and it just not good. <laughs> It's. I mean, it, it, like yeah. other people said, it was just American American film taking you know K horror and screwing it up. We're really good at that. It happens. In, I mean, the list is long and distinguished. The amount of, of J horror or K horror or other K-horror, Eastern horror yeah. films that have been completely fucked over by the American remakes. <laughs> someone, uh, I think it was uh, uh, someone brought up that the, okay, sarcasm brought up the reason that the Grudge was good was because of Sarah Michelle Gellar, and I will agree. Sarah Michelle Gellar brought a fantastic energy to that role. And I, I've always been very, very, one of the reasons why I like Sarah Michelle Gellar so much, well, you know, I, I was a big crush when I was younger, but it's because <laughs> besides, the Buffy of, crush, yeah. besides the Buffy crush was <laughs> her incredible dedication to her craft is that she will always go. She'll do what is absolutely necessary in order to convey the story, the story and the script come first. She's, that is why she has kind of a, a repetition of being kind of old Hollywood. She's a slave to the script, and then this is what the script says. So it's script, director, actor in that kind of mentality is that we all work from the script. The director interprets this, and then I convey what the director is serving that. And then we, we work together as a team on how we are interpreting the script. And because of her professionalism, because of her, because she, she's so, like, so dedicated to what she does, then I, that, that's, why, that's what makes that movie so good. She has that kind of capability. But unfortunately, and I honestly think I like Emily Browning as well. I think she was also kind of like miscast in this as well. Just not not great casting, not great, you know, in trying to Americanize this kind of storytelling is just not good. So That's, not to mention yeah, the yeah. ending of the the ending of the Korean one was so much more horrific than, oh God, yeah. than this one. They they said <laughs> in my eyes, they sanitized the horror a bit in order to go yeah. for the more visual ghost appeals, but they sanitized it's it with like the exploding guest house. Yeah. Yeah. 
being suffocating, asphyxiating slowly to death, being you know by a dresser in the like that's terrifying to me. Right. You know, so that they it was just ah just sanitized and weak and just you know I I couldn't stand it. it fucking pissed me off. No. Sir Chasm, thank you so much. It was gifted five more memberships to the Army of the Dead. Welcome, Skuma Cat, Crippled Cat, Sumi, Kimstone, and Greg Jonic to the Army of the Dead. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Welcome. Yes, Raven Dark. Sorry, I, I have a bias for SMG. We we know, we know. I know. I'm. She's so really inspired. good at at psychological. That's the thing. If you're gonna make a psychological horror film, you gotta cast the the kinds of people that can do psychological and horror. And you gotta understand when you're doing it. There's two different. There's two different sides to your character, and I, that's right. something I don't think Elizabeth Banks played on enough. Was. It, it was more obvious and less uh, you got to be subtle about it. You got to be passive on a lot of things to be like, Oh, all those things that she was doing was out of fear and not out of, you know, um, like evil. And so it's just, you got to be able to play that and not doing a whole lot of those kinds of roles uh, prior to this, I think kind of hurt Elizabeth Banks. Cause again, she's great. She's great. act. She's a great actress. And she oh, they're all phenomenally diverse. talented. They're all amazingly just, talented. Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love Emily. I fucking love Emily Browning in both. Uh, even though Sucker Punch wasn't a great movie, I loved her in that movie. She was great and in I the also, movie, and I fucking loved her in American Gods. She was oh, terrific God, as as Laura, as dead as dead wife Laura. I I love <laughs> that. I, I love what she brought to that. I loved her energy. She is fantastic. Emily Browning is amazingly talented. Elizabeth Banks is amazingly talented and funny as fuck. David Strathairn is amazingly talented. Fuck, if anybody has not seen Dolores Claiborne, God, I mean, shit, man. The David Strathairn has is like one of the is 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 a unsung. It's great. So much talent in this film, and it goes nowhere. It just has nowhere to fucking go. You know who they could have cast in this instead of Elizabeth Banks was uh, uh, Rachel Taylor. Oh yes. She oh was in, fuck yeah! She was in Shutter, I guess right Rachel, around the Rachel same Taylor time. Right for, those, for those not familiar with Rachel Taylor, she was. If you're more familiar with like the Marvel stuff, she was in Jessica Jones. She was. She yeah. played Jessica. She played uh, Jessica Jones's friend in that, like her the, her the blonde friend or the the adopted sister. So this the uh, the uh, she she played her in that one. She was, she's magnificent. So she's I think really yeah, Rachel Taylor would have been great. I think that would have been a good choice, but yeah. I mean, you know, I digress. DreamWorks, it was it was supposed to make money. They had the money. So for that, at that time, it did well. It just, Rachel you know. Taylor would have been, well, she would have been great. Uh, Rachel Taylor really would have been a fantastic that. cast. And because I don't she know. Comes off as, she comes off as, you know, it, you don't know which way she's going all the time. So it's like, yeah, I think that would have been a good. I think there are a number of actresses who could have played uh, who could have played uh, the role of Anna a lot better. Who just could have done more with that. Um, but I mean, like I said, like I think the film was miscast across the board. Um, the technical aspects are are there, but storytelling wise, not just not great. And I did I understand why they cast who they cast. I get why, but I would not have gone with those casting choices myself. I think Rich Hill would be fantastic. But that my question is on this one. I know that there's a lot that I know that the the love of American storytelling, the love of Eastern storytelling, and when these two cross, that it's very difficult to get it right. 
you see a lot of failure. You see more failures than you see successes. You see some some decent ones like Ring, like like uh, the Ring and uh, the Grudge. This is a bad ones like One Missed Call and Old Boy and a number of others. Just like just not great. But my curiosity is this: for you out there who watched this movie, did you prefer the original, the original Korean horror film, which I thought was just fucking brilliant? It was just a brilliant goddamn movie. Did you prefer the original one or did you like this remake better? Now that will come down to preference whether you like Americanized story or the American storytelling or you like, you know, Eastern storytelling. Either way, it doesn't matter. I'm just curious to which one you out there listening, which one you liked more. So definitely let us know down in the comments below or at weekendhorrorgmail.com which one you preferred, the original or the remake. So this one, the uninvited or the original, A Tale of Two Sisters, um, the Korean horror film. So definitely let us know. Oh, let me see. Tony Regime. Oh, Tony Regime. Yeah, yeah. Her, uh, Tony Regime brought up uh, her drug addiction story arc and Jessica Jones really gave her doubt. Rachel, Rachel Taylor is phenomenal. I mean, there was a, there was a, one of the early films that I saw her in. Um, if I, uh, again, damn it. Was it Apartment 666? Something like that. It was about, uh, she played yeah. the... Yeah, where she, where she and her she and her like you know, she and her like her new husband move into an apartment that is supposedly uh, a part of a hotel building. It was like Hotel Six 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 or some shit like that. But she was really good in that one. Um, but yeah, it was a hotel. Yeah, I can't remember what that was. Man, I, I forgot about it. that movie. Yeah, it was. It, I saw it years ago. You know. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I remember Rachel Taylor. Like Shutter. I I remember seeing Shutter, and at the end of it, you're like, man, that movie was stupid, but Rachel Taylor carried that on her back it was it just right being able to walk into a building and immediately like you know give an off-putting feeling you know i can't remember if it was a, like i think it was a camera store or something she walked into and shut her and it was like just the look on her face made me uneasy and i was like what what are we looking for i was like oh god damn like you got me again so yeah it, i think that would have been great for that Tony I forgot about that. is it hotel 666 Go ahead. i think is that the name of it yeah but uh, Tony mm-hmm. Regime says sometimes Hollywood doesn't realize what story the original was telling. Agree, they don't, or they have they have a very limited grasp on it. So that probably went into it as well. Or um, they assume people aren't going to know, and that's what that's what ticks me off. It's like, oh, uh, like thank they, you, they Tang just... Whistle, six 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 Park Avenue. There we go. Yeah, that was it. it. Thank okay. you, Tang Whistle. I couldn't remember the name of it, but I, re- I remember it was like six 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 something. I knew I knew like the six 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 played into it. Um, Operation Free World says, what? I loved one missed call when I was like seven. I changed okay. my mom's ringtone to the <laughs> okay. one for the film and freaked her out. Nice. Okay, so I had I had the ringtone for the longest time. I too, not apparently not so unpopular opinion, but I loved that movie. It was terrible, but it was it was so good. But yeah, I had that ringtone as well for uh probably a couple of years after the movie came out. Josh Willis says, Did you guys know that Black Swan was a remake of a Japanese animated horror film called Perfect Blue? Interesting. Interesting. Ooh, take that I up with Darren Aronofsky you. when I see him next time. I guess we're gonna <laughs> fun guess fact. We're gonna add that one to the queue. All right. So you ready to take on this next one? I know you enjoy I know you enjoyed this one. I like this one. This was this was a ride. <laughs> this was this is so it's just 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 balls out, just fun filming. Yeah, well, let's dive into it. Go ahead. It's fucking Louis the thirteenth, man. Um this one is going to be Brotherhood of the Wolf. This came out January 31st, 2001. Roll it. So, so I'm going to butcher the hell out of all these names because this is very French. <laughs> it's this so French. Was, that, would so French. French. that would be the French. 
That would be the uh, this one was directed by Christophe Gans or Gans. I don't. I'm gonna Gans. Yeah, it's Gans. It's Gans. <laughs> you know, he, he directed Silent Hill. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I still butchered his name. Um, and Stephane Cabell. Uh, is it in the back of the throat? Is that how you do it? <laughs> this movie had a a huge cast. There were so many people in this movie. It was insane, but. Um, top cast is going to be Samuel Le Bihan, Marcus Dacasacos, uh, Emily DeQuain, Monica Belushi, and Vincent Cassell. Um, like I said, I probably butchered every single one of those. But this movie is... Um, you got Monica Bellucci, all right? I got Monica Bellucci. Everyone gets Monica Bellucci. That's, yeah, you have to. But uh, this, this film... Um, Follows Marquis <laughs> as he re- uh, recounts <laughs> the Marquis with the- Marquis. Marquis de Abjet. Okay, you got it better than I do. I I can't. I'm sorry. I really apologize. Because <laughs> I listen to this. Because I listen to the names in the movie. <laughs> that's fair. I can't. It's <laughs> but only because this is freaking amazing. But um. So, anyways, this is a he he's recounting. Um, back to 1764 where this beast is terrorizing um, this countryside and uh, so people, essentially the Brotherhood of the Wolf come in to capture and um, take care of the situation and things and since Eugene is in here, shit gets really real when, um, you know, King King Louis the 15th shows up but um, this, this was an amazing, like this was, it was more about the period film aspect of it that was kind of just amazing. It cinematically was great. I loved this film and I wish I could, I wish Eugene was here to talk about this one. Cause I feel like he'd have a lot to say about most of the aspects of this film. It's a, okay. So I, I dug this one, even though there is, I, I love this one because straight, straight up for anybody who hasn't had the opportunity to watch one, it came out in 2001. So quite a while ago. Um, it's a it's pure popcorn a, a per, pure popcorn flick. It's a combination of multiple genres. Uh, oh, Christoph sure. Gans uh, you know, runs the gamut and pretty much just packs everything that he can. There are horror elements, there is thriller elements, there's action elements, there is you know, there's like is almost like kind of espionage, conspiratorial stuff. There's religious aspects, political intrigue, martial, <laughs> martial arts action in this. It's wild. So, but yeah, I I, I got to give across the board. I loved all, I loved everything about the, I loved everything about this one and there's so many so so much good stuff and you know I know that they, there's a lot of French in it as well I loved the the casting across the board was fantastic I thought that Samuel Lebahan was a blast in this role and he his his um his uh uh blah 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 blah, blah fucking his chemistry with uh his, the character Ma, uh, Mani who is the Iroquois who is his kind of like Iroquois uh, companion who's brought him from the from the French Canadian War, who joined him from the French Canadian War, and has come over to kind of like pal around with him and do whatever. I thought that the the, the casting of Marcus uh, DeCascos was amazing in this one. Yes, it gets a little wild when all of a sudden the you know the, at the time this is supposed to be 17, 1764, so it's eighteenth century, and then you've got the fucking. <laughs> You've got fucking uh, the Iroquois dude showing up, like throwing kung fu and shit, and doing arts and <laughs> the whatever. And it's supposed to be. It's interesting because both men 
fought in the French-Canadian Wars. That's where their history is, where they both met, they became friends, and that Monty, Sir, Monty uh, assisted uh, the French during that time, during, you know, during, the, during that conflict. That's how the two of them met, became friends, because de Fronsac is actually, Gregory de Fronsac, who is the, the main character, is actually a naturalist. And being that he is the, the, the king, he is the natural, basically he's like the naturalist of the court. So to King, uh, to King Louis the 15th, King Louis hearing about this, about these events in, uh, guard, I believe it's in Govadon, in, in Govadon, um, decides to send his chief naturalist, like the, the, the leading guy to go out and figure out what the hell is, is happening because these reports are coming out of here. And that is because and I love this fact that this movie is actually based on an actual fucking legend. True story, yeah. That's so they took this, they took this true story and then took all of these fucking elements and put them in here to make this fantastic <laughs> film that is both that is fun and intriguing and it's shot fucking beautifully. I know where they, they shot they shot it on location in France, but fucking hell, it's not just the locations, but how he shot this stuff, how Christoph shot these things. Whether it was the slow motion sequences, whether it was, you know, the fighting action sequences, or the moments where it's like you know political intrigue, or it's like he's being a he's being a ladies' man and he's like hitting on to go to being the you know, I love fucking love every single element of this one. Um, Angel Rivera says, and the chief naturalist became natural fertilizer. No, because he actually kicks more ass than his Iroquois companion does. Especially we I love the sequence when he busts in there and he just drops out like fucking Iron Man superhero landing. Pulls out the swords, starts working on everybody's fucking great. No, it was. It, it's wild. So it's the the story in and of itself, and is is fascinating. Now the original story, the original legend is, is about the Beast of Govadon. The Beast of Govadon was a. Uh, it's become a legend at this point. It was an unknown. There were reports that a number of people were killed by this creature in uh in the area of govadon and nobody could identify what it was the the descriptions i mean if I remember correctly the descriptions range from every everything from like a lion to a spotted hyena to um a wolf dog to whatever but there were reports of this thing out there that it was like killing people and then the killing then there was a massive purge of a purge of the wolf population and then the the attack stopped so either they got the animal or they pushed it away and they scared it off and it went to an, went to went somewhere else. Don't know. But there's that actual limit, like legit legend behind this thing. And then Christoph Gans came, comes in and not only brings us Kung Fu and martial arts fighting, but also the political intrigue of the local church fearing the area of like, fearing France moving away from God to work together with this cult, this kind of like Gnostic Christian cult to create this <laughs> demonic creature to scare people into coming back to church. <laughs> and that like, then the crown of uh, King Louis is kind of like, what the fuck? Because of the current, like the, the battle in between Protestantism and Catholicism at the time and the, the, the battle for the, uh, the throne of France and be in control of France. It's fucking crazy. And then Monica Bellucci is like a fucking spy for the Holy See, and <laughs> it doesn't. It's it's wild because it's like there's so much going on. You've got historical accuracies happening at the same time as this legend's going on, and this is like you know you got the French Revolution happening while this memoir memoir is being written, and there's just so much like historical accuracy, and then they just like 
mesh together things that absolutely would not have been in the same place at the same time. And you're like, right. hey, totally you know what? I'll let it go. Almost, I'll let it almost go. Knight's Tale. Almost Knight's yeah. Tale <laughs> and how kind of ridiculous it is at times. Yeah. Sarcasm, thank you so much for the super chat. Sarcasm for $5, five freedom dollars says, but it was so boring. It could have been an hour shorter and lost nothing. Agree. I will say sure. that Chris, Christoph Gans took his time with this film <laughs> with a lot of little setups. He had a you lot know, of ideas, man. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on here. And I would say if it was not for the performances of of everybody in this, not for the first Samuel Lee Behan, for Vincent Castle as the as the as Jean-Francois de Morgan, uh, not for his he, he winds up being the villain of the piece. Emily Dicken, um, who is not only a phenomenal actress, but also like you know, royalty as well. Monica Bellucci is fantastic in it. Jeremy Renier, Mark Dacascos uh is phenomenal as Monty. There's so many little things going on in this. It was Christoph Gans' attention to detail that I think is what makes this one so watchable and so enjoyable. And I will say that I, I think that while the ending kind of like, you know, was a little kind of like, I think they kind of may have painted themselves into a corner, but they gave us so, but he gave us so much, which is so, was like so much fun that, you know, the beast ends up being like this lion that was armored and, you know, that was like tortured and abused into becoming like this killing machine. And then it was like armored up and you know, turned to let loose across the countryside. And then Vincent Cassell is, you know, is the guy who actually did it. And, you know, and plus, I mean, come on, where, where does that sword come from? The sword whip thing was like, literally it's fucking soul caliber. It's like the soul caliber <laughs> weapon that he utilized in this motherfucker. <laughs> That's, you know what? I do remember seeing in that, what was that one show where they pitted the warriors against each other in the simulation um god i was on all the time when i was in college but anyways they had that sword in there so it was like but i i remembered specifically it not being part of any of that history so yeah it's it's, yeah throw so throw so much in there but um i i i like travis brown says too much castlevania i think yeah probably i i travis brown monty python or the full monty yes (laughs) i i dug this one I, i i think it's fun there is, a, I think, uh, there's a lot of enjo- a lot of things to enjoy in this one. Even though there's so much packed into it in its running time, um, it's it's 142 minutes long, which is pretty impressive for for telling this kind of story. It definitely could have. I think that Christoph Gans probably could have told it. I think that more of a Sleepy Hollow kind of take could have been really really interesting, or maybe a kind of Brothers Grimm. Kind of take, yeah, but I wouldn't say Terry Gill. I wouldn't say the Terry Gilliam style, but uh, I think like maybe a like a Sleepy Hollow style where they're brought in by the king and they're unassuming, and then you know it comes out, and then you have like one is one is like the physical badass, one is the mental badass, and the two of them work together to uncover like this plot or something of that nature. But maybe with a little bit more of a swing towards now, this would go this would go in the lens of like tightening things up, like sarcasm said. Yeah, there's so much that's in there, and you probably could cut an hour out of it. But if you did like a kind of like a Sleepy Hollow meets from hell kind of idea where there's this underlying plot to this legend that is uncovered, but eventually, you know, the conspirators uh, managed to like shut everything. There's no evidence. And the French Revolution, they could use the backdrop of the French Revolution or the, the, up, the upcoming French Revolution to kind of obscure like what really happened. That's why it's lost to history. So and I think that could have tightened up a little bit better to take elements like that. But otherwise, it's 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 a wonderful film. It was great. And I, I'm trying to think of how you could cut. and Because you could, but 
then you'd lose awesome pieces. Maybe, maybe split it into two different movies. I don't know. But it was, yeah, there was a lot. I but, like the, the, I think the, the elements of showing their backstory of shell uh, showing like, you know, how, why he became a naturalist because of his aversion to war and, right. and you know, didn't want to be the, didn't want to be the guy that he, that he had become the, he didn't want to be the soldier anymore. So he, you know, I, I liked that element. I liked his connection with Monty. I like Monty kind of like the fish out of water, you know, kind of like just dealing with this kind of society. Um, I liked the, the rough approach of the outdoorsman amongst French polite society. Um, I loved the intrigue of the, of the Catholic, of the, of the, uh, the idea of the, uh, the Catholics pushing against the Protestants and that kind of like background information going on, not to mention the lead up to the French revolution and how things were going, which is why the whole story is told by a dude who's about to get decapitated in the revolution. Like he's sitting in his cell telling a story of what happened and that because no one reported on it, it the story is going to die with him. And that's why it's the lead. That's why we never heard about it. That's why I, I done so many cool things. This is fun. Storytelling is what it is. It was, it was a really great story. elements. I I I, mean, I thought I thought the the monster was was done quite well. Uh yeah. So, <laughs> God, you said Monty, and I was like, oh man, poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> he walks into that catacomb and he's like, ah oh, shit. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you think I do you think I should ask him what they think? Oh, what the what the real one was? <laughs> you see, you see, this is fascinating. Okay, so. I was I was curious about this myself, and and I definitely want to get your opinion. Like, um, let me see, let me see. I want to make sure I got this real quick. And I thought I thought number one, I thought the the monster this was done so well because Jim Henson's Creature Shop handled the effects on that one. It was both puppetry and uh and and some CGI, but uh, I thought it was really really uh, really really good stuff. Um, and just yeah, you know, just fantastic for the time period. I thought it was just great. But um, I'm curious. Let me let me actually pull this up and okay so yeah i wanted to pull this up so the idea of what this thing of what this thing could be i'm very curious so yeah go ahead go ahead and you can ask them that's okay so the cta on this one um what do you think the beast was what do you think the real beast was the real beast of godavan the real beast of godavan godavan i know i can't can't do it can't do the french um but no seriously i because I'm going to have to read this book because there's a book on it and I'm interested now, but it was probably just the wolf. So if you go and read the quick story on the internet about this beast, there's a, a good, I think Wikipedia is where I saw the, the article, but if you, if you read it and you really look into it and the time period and what was going on, it might've just been starving wolves <laughs> where they were the, the time and place. It just, it would work out that way. But I mean, if you really want to go supernatural, there's a hundred different cryptids that you could throw in there. It could have been a person, considering there was, you know, I think they covered him. The women and children were victims, um, more I think more than men were in this the original story. But you know, it, what if it was just a fucking deranged serial killer that? Oh, that'd be fucking wild. You know, it was part of the hunting party that went and killed out all the wolves. And he's like, this is my perfect escape. I, you know, we got him and then they move on. But So the wolf thing comes in because, you know, back in those days, uh, attacks by wolves were extremely bad. And there was, uh, I think there was, um, in uh, like reading the history, in the spring of 1765, in the midst of the Govadon hysteria, there was an unrelated series of attacks that occurred near the commune of Soissons, uh, northeast of Paris, in which an individual wolf killed at least four people over a period of two days 
and before being hunted down by a man with a pitchfork. Um, <laughs> so wolf, like wolf attacks were pretty, were pretty intense because there's a lot of agriculture, a lot of farming out there and just not, a, not everybody had access to the weaponry necessary. Like I said, the guy had to hunt down the wolf with a pitchfork, you know, in order to go out and, you know, protect their properties, protect their livestock. Now, history says that it was likely a pack of wolves, but of the 300 people who reported seeing this thing, though, the, the descriptions are intriguing. So the, the, the things that have been posited is that it was a wolf or some other type of wild cannon, um, a lion that may have escaped from a menagerie <laughs> or a striped hyena that may have all, that may have escaped from a mana, from a, from a menagerie. Um, or maybe a particularly large wolf dog or a feral wolf dog that had gotten out, which is why it was so large. Um, but there's another that, uh, I mean, the, 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 you know, whatever this thing was, you know, but I'm kind of curious what, what, uh, what people are thinking here. Let me see. Let me check out this live chat real quick. The real beast, the run, the run time. Thanks. Sarcasm. Appreciate that. Uh, Tony Regine says could have been anything from a wild dog to a bear or uh rodent. Ellis names is an overly aggressive wolf. Angel Rivera says a crazy man. Possible. 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 It's the problem. The problem. So if you read the story, this happened over what, like three years? It was like, yeah, I think it was about three years that these attacks happened. There was like 210 attacks and something like 94 casualties in it. But it yeah. spanned like like 50 or 56 miles. And so you got to kind of take that into consideration because it's like that's a that's a wide area to cover, not for a person in three years. But if you're talking about like a local animal, 50 miles out and having the same, the same attacks, it, that's where it starts to get a little funky. Cause you're like, okay, that's, that seems co more coordinated than, yeah. than just random wolf attacks in, in one area. But well, yeah, so that's where edges. it kind of gets a little funky. Good to see you, Frayed Edges. Thanks so much for being here. Says, look what, uh, just look what two lions could do in the ghost in the darkness. It's fair. But I, I think you, it's, I don't know about the, cause the people that were partially eaten were only partially eaten. So if you're thinking hungry lion, I don't think they're going to leave too much behind. I think it would be more, a more full job. I don't know. Interesting. Right. Fred Angel says a rabid bear or something that got loose from a traveling circus an abused animal possible. Could have been, it could have been a bear. There's a number of things. Oh, left-handed Jedi says either a dire wolf or a crazy Nord berserker that got lost. <laughs> Just killing people in the fucking <laughs> South of France. She is great. Sir Kazan, thank you so much for gifting another five memberships to the Army of the Dead. Welcome, Freight Edges, Andrew Forrest, Lisa Woodhart, Frontier Watch, and Helson. You are now members of the Army of the Dead. Please enjoy the emojis and the channel badge that we've made for you. So thank you very much. Very you know, generous what? of you, Sir Kazan. Thank you. I think uh, I think Joshua Lee might have hit it on the head. I didn't even consider that as an option. Honey, honey badger. badger, honey badger, they don't give a shit. There's a honey badger running around fucking people up, fucking up French farmers. Uh <laughs> <laughs> are you talking right. funny Urgh. so i think uh, it's i think it's interesting i like what what christoph gone did with this film i like what he brought to it uh it's it's entertaining to say the least just a lot of really fun stuff and i i liken this movie to kind of like with the while it does have the horror elements of you know what was going on with the cult and the murders and the fact that he was using this animal to uh to kill these people in order to kind of like drive people back to the church and shit it's really weird, it's so just weird up. cold stuff. So it's so fucking just, it's so convoluted, but it's just so much fun. I liken it to movies like, and, and anachronistic. I liken it to movies like, uh, like uh, fucking Knight's Tale, where it's just a popcorn <laughs> flick that you watch just because it's entertaining as shit. Not to mention the performances are great. They're all just fantastic. Everybody was great in this one. 
So if you're gonna if you're gonna fucking run off on a tangent in a movie like this, a historical time piece that you turn it into a horror movie, which is hard to do on its own, and then you start mixing in all sorts of different subgenres that are just not something that you see. This is kind of a this is kind of a one of it one of its kind genre movies. You don't really see it except for like a night's tale. That's funny because it's like that's yeah. But yeah, so if, if you're gonna go off on a fucking tangent on a movie like this, this is the way to do it. It, it was done tastefully. It was done. It, casting was great. Cinematography was great. It was a little long, but if it's gonna be, this is the one that it could could do that in and be. They could have they they could have done without the whole like the whole imprisonment, execution, and then revival of the guy. Yeah. They that like that whole sequence. He could have been like 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 locked up and then done the reveal of Monica Bellucci as like the spy for the Holy See, and then she releases him and then he goes and exacts revenge kind of like in a in a Yojimbo kind of like last man standing kind of thing because the death of his friend the, the the death of his buddy he's going there to avenge it so because he gets released from prison and set loose so the whole like faking his death you know, then dragged out way too much and it just could have been sure, you know yeah. yeah probably just went on a little bit too long I think that that section could have been uh, taken out you could, yeah definitely could have yeah. shortened that up by by a good 45 minutes yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Travis Brown. Or it could have been uh, Oliver Reed eating people while being drunk. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him. I really wouldn't. I wouldn't at all. All right. We have got one more to talk about tonight before we wrap up tonight's show. And uh, I'll uh, pick this one up. This next <laughs> film, uh, an early film. We're going back uh, uh, back a ways. Um, released February 1st. Can you believe it's already fucking, it's, it's, it's going to be February here shortly. Stop. Already one month down, man. Fuck. The years they're just trucking by. February 1st, 1963. We have the macabre horror film Night Tide. Let's check out this trailer. Cue up the terror tube. <laughs> I see you laughing over there. So that was the trailer for Night Tide. Um, a uh, came out in 1961, uh, and directed by legendary Curtis Harrington, written by Curtis Harrington, starring Dennis Hopper in his first ever leading role not his first movie, but his first leading role. Linda Lawson, Luann Anders, and Gavin, uh, Gavin Meir. The uh, film follows a uh, sailor, Johnny Drake, who is currently on shore leave in Santa Monica, where he meets a young woman down at the pier named Mora, who works in a local, uh, who works or meets her in a uh, local jazz club, and she appears as a mermaid in a in a sideshow um, at the pier attractions. Um, and but then, you know, the question then becomes: it, Is she really a mermaid, or is she not? Uh, what is going on? And then things become very very weird as Johnny is dragged down this story of uh, missing boyfriends and the possibility that this woman is actually, <laughs> you know, actually maybe legitimately this. Um, legitimately, I see a sea person or a mermaid, or a siren, because there's a lot of references to the Greek mythology there. But, uh, but yeah, um, okay. So I don't know what Harrington was trying to do with this with this role <laughs> with this with this film. I don't with what he wrote. I'm not sure. Uh, I will say this that, and it was pointed out that Casey Cooper pointed out the music never knew which way it was supposed to go. Agreed with this one um, that. The, the music of the film does not match the what they're, the story they're trying to tell. It definitely elevated it more than it should have, especially when you have sequences, when he has his dream sequence, when he's like making out with her and then like all the tentacles come out and it's like, ah, like this. He's like, ah, you know, it, I mean, for, for a film in the early 60s to go in some of the direction this one went was pretty ballsy. 
And, but cool. I think that the music choices were deliberate in order to kind of like elevate it away from the stark horror of what they were telling about, because the story itself is, is really, really fucked up because uh, ultimately the, the, the girl Mora, Mora, the character of Mora has been gaslit from a young age by a guy who like found her decades ago because she's you know uh, several decades he's been gaslit into thinking that she is in fact a mermaid and that one you know so you know to make to make money off of her and then whenever guys like come along and try to woo her away and you know make her interested in the outside world he winds up killing them to get rid of them and then gaslights her into thinking that she killed them so there's like sight so this this film goes into like psychological abuse psychological horror uh all kinds of like weirdness but then there's the underlay the, the, this is what's weird while well crafted as a psychological horror i'll give it that and dennis hopper is is decent although really <sighs> okay yeah so uh, before we get into that before i get in before i get into that before we get into that aspect of it um i think that's what makes this film so like compellingly strange is that the elements are so dark, especially for early 1960s. The elements are so fucking dark, and yet the way it was shot, the way it was cut, and the way that the the and the uh, the the, uh, the scoring of the film was designed to like try to pull it out of that darkness, pull it out of that mire, which makes for a very very weird experience, all a very unbalanced disconcerting experience because nothing matches what is not to mention they utilize like the Af African people doing yeah, African people drumming, which is a common trope for conveying dark and dark negativity and, you know, stuff like that. And so that was a common trope utilized in early sixties, fifties uh, and sixties films. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, it, this movie is so fucking strange. Oh, let me ask, let me ask you this, man. I know that it was a different time. 1960s. I know. Mm -hmm. Dennis Hopper himself is a is was a, was a was a strange kind of guy. In, you know, intense, wild, damn near mm -hmm. like lost his fucking uh like lost his career because of his behavior. And then this was like was his so weird, yeah. And then and then thanks to John Wayne, who actually salvaged his career, and he managed to land the, like this lead role. And he and he's a method actor. He studied under uh, under uh, Strasberg, and when he got this one, his first leading role there. What, what was is it just me or was that just a creepier fucking time? Was he not pushy as goddamn shit? I mean, like, yeah, almost forceful see, in that. I, see, I mean, is it just is it is it was it a different time? Is that what I want? Because it's holy like who's fuck, who? No, you're not wrong, and that's the thing. Okay, so when you put it that way, you're looking at a time where that was the way that he was acting was probably normal. I don't know, but it's gone. That kind of behavior is just creepy, and it was so fucking pushy. But I think it was like pushy. All I think it was creepy shit. in a different way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Nowadays, that is absolutely unacceptable, and that's like an on-site situation. But like, even then, I don't know. Yeah, it was. It was really creepy, but like, in a gaslighty way. This this was just a big gaslight. The whole thing was just. They're touching on psychological horror in the sixties. First right. of all, that's that's just. It, that's like you said, it's ballsy. A, it's a ballsy fucking it story is. for that, for Expe that time period. Yeah, especially yeah for the time period, and then you know for it to kind of go into like these themes of it, it, they touched on like mythology, and there was 
just the whole background of like information and then um the beatnik culture influence in this these like um uh these counterculture elements to the film and then yeah but they're touching on real stuff like mermaids and sailors and like yeah it's so back and forth but yeah dennis hopper man this is before he blew up in hollywood and i think maybe kind of foretold the the way that his career was gonna go i think he played (laughs) i think he played his future self in this character a lot. I think was, that that's who he was. It really, it really, really does. I mean, yeah. you look at his performances, like they kind of like there was an almost manic quality to him, uh-huh. just like this is energy that kept like trying to get out. Although he was really, I would say for for Dennis Hopper, he was very reserved. But if you turn around and you watch him, watch his performances in his in his early stuff, um, the, like the I think like the the like when he was in uh, um, Rebel, that I think was a what, what, what there's two movies. Rebel that a cause and giant and his work yeah. with James Dean. He was, he had like this, this attitude. I know that apparently what happened was, is that um, he and James Dean were close friends and the debt. And when James Dean died, when he died, uh, when he crashes his, his, uh, his poor spider and he passed away, that apparently really, really fucked with Hopper and Hopper yeah. just kind of like went off. On kind of like 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 just it just really really just fucked with him, and he became kind of a nightmare to have on set. And his the like what one of the next films he did like the, he was such a pain in the ass. That the director was almost like you're never like I think it was uh, I think it was fucking Harrington. Oh let me let me find out because he almost lost his career, and then it was thanks to John John Wayne that he was able to kind of resurrect it because he made friends with John Wayne and through connections there, he's able to work again. And he finally got his first leading role after he started, you know, working with Lee Strasberg. And so he got this one and you can kind of see that uh, there were some, there were some real, some elements in this that were really fucking good that, that Hopper showed some real range in this. I like even as raw as it is, as raw as, as Hopper was here, there was some good stuff and some good, like emotive uh, moments, but he's the only real kind of like watchable thing. And everybody else is kind of cookie cutter and just, just kind of thrown in there. And I don't know. Uh, Hopper played this like he had to take a massive shit in every scene. (laughs) There was almost constipation to it. There really was. It was kind of, it was weird. Like he was holding himself back. Like he was like, I really want to like blow up. That, except that moment when he's kind of like when he's in the when he's in the jazz club, it was just so fucking creepy. He's in the jazz club and she's like hinted twice. I don't want to talk to you. I'm don't not. Do it. I'm here for the music, and then I'm just going to insert myself into your fucking life. And then I'm so pushy, you know. And then like you know, yeah, kissing her, you know, that intensely, like like just having met her, and then like coming over for I'll come over tomorrow. I'll make you breakfast. That was all the. The way she delivered that was almost like it was like, okay, get the fuck away. I'm gonna say anything to get you to go away. <laughs> just anything. To, you know, yeah. just come back tomorrow at eleven, I'll make you breakfast. Okay, great. Bye. And then it's like what good. The I'm shit? Go. it's so fucking just strange. Uncomfortable for sure. There was a lot of uncomfortable moments in this, you know. But that, you know, the fact that Herring the fact that uh fucking Harrington, Curtis Harrington was willing to go somewhere now this is what's interesting about this now think about this curtis harrington was regarded as one of the forerunners of what's called new queer cinema and 
he did a lot of experimental and uh, experimental and horror films that went into some very, very, uh, at the time would be considered taboo topics. Like he was one of those push the envelope kind of directors. Trying to do what Hitchcock did in what, you know, how he would tell these really, really fascinating stories that really played with, you know, perception and, you know, mess with the audience and, you know, like, you know, rug pulls and uh, unreliable narrators. And of course, broaching topics like in this particular one, um, the idea of like, they think about that dream sequence, having a having a dream sequence where your your lead actor is suddenly just like making out with this hot chick. And then all of a sudden, all the tentacles come out, start wrapping it up like that weird kind of shit. <laughs> Harrington was known for that. And yeah. this is why. But which, this is which, what, by what the I, way, hold on. I'm sorry. Sorry to stop. No, you go, ahead, go, like, ahead, go ahead. That that scene. That scene was that's where it was like, OK, this movie is doing stuff that you don't see until much later in film. So like having that like because you know it's a dream sequence kind of but like oh my god is it real and something really bad happens and then they wake up and then it turns out there is a monster but it's not the one you thought you see this much later but nobody really touches on it until later on and i can't think off the top of my head um what the first film after this would have been to do it but that sequence was that was cool that they did that i appreciated that dream sequence because they were trying to do something that without like you know, without CGI and without it just, it played really well. And I thought that was, I thought that was really cool. I just wanted to touch on that. Cause it was a cool, cool scene. It was a cool shoot, but it it's like, I yeah, know. I know somebody's a monster. There's a monster. This woman is in my life and now there's a monster and then make something up in your head. It was, I, that was cool. <laughs> yeah. They did some really good stuff. Really good stuff. This I love, I mean, uh, shooting in Santa Monica is always, is a really beautiful area, even though the film is shot in black and white. Um, they did some underwater sequences, which were really, really yeah, impressive cool. at the time you know, for the for the early '60s. There was some really, really good stuff. Even simulating a sequence when you know when people are when people are diving and then all of a sudden your dive line your your line gets cut and all of a sudden oh, I'm doing the whole panic scene. <laughs> I mean, at the time it was incredibly dangerous stuff, and they they I mean they did some really interesting, challenging things in this film. My thoughts on the film in and of itself is that there was it feels like there was intense pushback between the studio, uh, between who was it, between AIP, which is weird because this, I get the, I get the sensation that there was pushback between AIP and Harrington on the direction that this film would go. Now the film in and of itself, the way Harrington wrote it is supposed to be a kind of like inspired by the poem Annabelle Lee. And thereby, by and if anybody not knowing, you know, not familiar with that one, because the intention of the movie was to uh, do a kind of like Poe. AIP wanted to do a series of Poe adaptations, and they wanted to debut this one. And they debuted this one as a as a uh, um, as a double feature with uh, the 1960 with a 1963 film, The Raven, which was produced uh, written produced by Roger Corman as part of his Poe cycle. And so they brought Harrington in to do this one to kind of have a double feature, you know, because that an A film and a B film, and so. And this one, and it was interesting because that Raven, the 63 version of the Raven had fucking Jack Nicholson in it. Jack Nicholson was in the Raven <laughs> and uh, Dennis Hopper was in Night Tide and the two of them would go on to make East Rider later on. So I, it's weird how the, the symmetry, how it kind of comes together that they were both in this, they did this double feature uh, back then. But I think that this was AIP interfering with uh, Harrington's vision. Whereas if you watch the Raven, if you watch AIP's Raven, that when that came out, that's more formulaic and much more Poe inspired. 
Whereas it's kind of like, you know, it took those elements and placed them in there, but then, but basically told it, it basically had a, a standard story. Like there's your story. And then the elements of the, po- the elements of like the Raven are, are, are kind of peppered in there. I think Harrington wanted to go in an almost dreamlike, very kind of surrealistic take on this one where, where what is real, well, what, what we think is real may not really be real. And he wanted to go in a more artistic way. And I think AIP interfered with that and likely kept the more horrific elements, but it's probably the reason why the score was such, was such trash and why the score <laughs> throws the whole fucking movie off because the, the score just kept fucking with me the whole time. Like it did not match anything. It'd be like this happy, you know? jolly music. And it was like, what, but this is terrible. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, it's really, really strange, but it, I mean, so many, so many interesting possibilities with this one. Sure. And, but you know, I can see, I, I but Harrington was a challenge. Was it, was a Harrington was a director who wanted to challenge himself. He wanted to challenge, challenge himself. And he wanted to tell stories that he found were interesting. And he'd tell them in the style that he found fascinating. And you know, at the time, likely pushback from because audiences i know that there were some reports that when people saw the dream sequence that it really kind of put people off the film that the idea of like you know the turning into the sea monster they're like that that really kind of like you know ups, like upset some audiences because it was just like a little too much you know push like ah oh, the yeah. tentacles ah oh, they're all it was like and then turning from like the sexy scene people weren't ready for that kind of like ooh the sexiness into the oh god the the erotic into that extreme horror that for the 60s that was that was really really intense and that but that's what you get from Harrington's films um he, he was, <laughs> he was a, that's a normal wednesday now <laughs> true so true <laughs> absolutely true but otherwise you know and i have to agree with sarcasm on this one you can see the elements there are really fascinating. And I think Dennis Hopper was inspired casting. It really was. And I, I honestly, it's so, it's just so fucking weird because there's, there's elements in there that you're going to hate because it's the early sixties, the blatant misogyny, the putting of a woman in her place. And then there's the psychological horror aspects of the gaslighting a person into thinking that they are a mythological figure. And then the ambiguity of the sea witch, the woman who keeps showing up and then just disappears. No one else sees her except for Dennis Hopper. It's really fucking strange. There's a lot of strange shit in this movie. Um, not to mention, and, and that does not include, and that's, that's including Dennis Hopper, who himself is very fucking kind of weird in a lot of moments, just like creepy and pushy and just like, you know, whatever. I just, it's, it's fucking, it's just a weird fucking movie. But. <laughs> I think you should see it because it's an early, it, it's raw Hopper. So if you're a Dennis Hopper fan, if you like Blue Velvet, you know, if you're a big, yeah. spe- if you're a big speed fan, you know, shit like that, um, then yeah, it's his first, it's his first leading role, and you can first see, leading role, I give it to him. Yeah, you can see he's like, you know, he's trying to be himself, but also clearly has very specific direction and doesn't want to. He's got his own idea. His first leading role, yeah. He's got so his own idea. I mean, the, the film he did that almost cost him his career, like early, it was, his, it was like his third film or something like that. A raw Hooper as opposed to cooked Hooper. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and Hooper's expression of having a strange shit. Thank you, Tony Regime. Absolutely. So the problem was is that on, on one of his films, and I can't remember which film it was. I, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, oh, actually, fuck, I closed it. He got into, a, he got into an argument <laughs> with a director and this is early in his, this is unfathomable to me as an actor. Early in his career, he's got a couple of like roles under his belt, nothing huge, has never led a film. Gets into it with a director 
about how to shoot a certain take, winds up shooting 80 takes of this scene over the course of several days, putting production behind until he finally acquiesced to the director himself and said, let's go with the, with what you want. And then finally do the scene. <laughs> that fucker was kind of like, you are no longer, you will never have a career again because it was a veteran director that he was working with. And he was like, your, I, your, your career is fucking over. I'm ending you. And it was only because of the sake of John Wayne that Hooper actually, that Hopper has a fucking career at all it was because John Wayne came in they knew kind of the same people and they got along and it was, uh, it was hey, the only reason that off day. He's just having right. an off day. Let him back. It's fine. And then he turns around and he punches out fucking Easy Rider with you know, Peter Fonda and fucking Jack yeah. Nicholson and starts cranking him out. Just that, like, like, like some other actors, like Klaus Kinski, like fucking Oliver Reed, he's kind of like one of the you know wacky actors, you know, those you know it's like intense and volatile actors who are just phenomenal when they when they are yep. getting their groove. Holy fucking shit, they're so good. And I want to say hi. I saw Sir Little Wolf is in the chat. Good to see you, Sir Little Wolf. It's been a long time. Glad uh, glad to see you joined us. Gosh, Heckfire as well. Good to see you. Look at all those green names, all those people who got uh, who got all those new members of the Army of the Dead. Thank you so much for being here, y'all. Um, and I see like Jinju sticking out. It's the one black man. So, <laughs> but good to see everybody. Yeah, Sir Cab says Easy Rider, uh, then Blue Velvet, then uh, uh, True Romance. He was fucking amazing in True Romance. I thought he was great. Him and Chris Walken. Him and walking, that whole sequence is fucking brilliant. Because you know he's got that moment. I see. I know I'm not. I'm not getting out of here alive. They're not. I, I can't. It, it can't happen. Can I get a cigarette? Now I'm gonna fucking insult you to your fucking face. It's like Chris Walk is like, holy shit, man. What the fuck? Oh, I love that sequence. Yeah, Dennis Hopper. God, he was so good. I loved him in Apocalypse. Now, Coppola. That was inspired casting the 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 manic hippie war journalist guys. Like, yo, I fucking love that shit. Oh, I love it. All right, but the question that I have for the audience, given that this movie is thematically around kind of like mermaids or sea people, my question is, <laughs> given the range of how we can portray, uh, how mermaids have been portrayed in you know fiction, whether it's movies or books or whatever, do you out there prefer nice mermaids like Ariel and Daryl Hannah and Splash or do you like horror mermaids like, you know, Stranger, uh, like, uh, like Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides? Um, or do you do you like the horror versions of mermaids, horror mermaids or nice mermaids? Which one works better? Which one do you prefer both? Or which one do you prefer? Or both. Tank Whistle says both. Tank Whistle says both. Of them. Sir Little Wolf says Cabin in the Woods. Fucking hell yeah. Yeah. Merman. I'm never going to get to see a merman. Oh, be grateful, man. Cause the cleanup on those things is, is horrible. Until he finally got to see what it was. <laughs> yeah, it was fucking great. It's one of the best setups. Man, I'm never going to get to see a merman. <laughs> horror mermaids. A lot of love for horror mermaids in here. Horror mermaids. Yep, horror mermaids. Love it. But definitely let us know down in the comments below. Remember, those comments really help with the Those interactions help with the algorithm. So we do appreciate that. But yeah, yeah love it. I like horror mermaids. You like horror, horror mermaids? I like scary mermaids. Where they eat scary mermaids are the best because they're actually, they were supposed to be scary. They're not supposed to be. Right. Brushing your dead. Right. Yeah, Definitely. That's the whole point. All right. Dagon's mermaids. Oh, I like that, Javier. Absolutely. Definitely. All right. Well, that's the last one. And we're we're actually a little bit over, but uh, you know what time it is. You know, you know what time uh, it's been a minute, but you know what time it is, right? What's that sound? Something sounds like it's charging up. I think it is. 
you can kind of hear you can hear it whining in the background because it's trivia time. <laughs> For so long we were using you to do that, and now we have it. So. <laughs> Yes, it oh. is time. So, for all of you out there in the live chat, that's got to be so loud. If you are the first one, <laughs> and everybody's expecting now, now we got to kind of play with the timing a little bit. But for everyone out there, be the first person in the live chat to get the correct answer to this upcoming trivia question, and you will win a special item from the Weekend Horror Store. So, since you're here, Alex, take it away, man. Give them their trivia question for tonight. Let's go. All right, trivia question Let's for go. tonight. What 2006 film was Dennis Hopper's final horror film? Again, what 2006 film was Dennis Hopper's final horror film? Roll it in the live chat. Let's go. <laughs> Raven says, what? You say something? That's right. <laughs> Best so sound effect it, this, ever. This is interesting because we get into Dennis Hopper and, you know, yeah, I was like, what would horror films? He's done some horror films. But what was his what was his last horror film? Was the last, last horror film he ever popped in? We got some answers coming to Extra J. Now it wasn't Lloyd Kaufman. Uh, so little was it Land of the Dead. Nope. Tangle oh, said memory. And nope. Travis Brown got it with Hoboken mm. Hollow. Hoboken Hollow. Hoboken Hollow was was Dennis Hopper's final horror film. Now, he did a few more films. It was about the time when he started doing more appear as himself. He did some documentaries and stuff like that. But his last legitimate horror film was Hoboken Hollow that came out in 2006, based off the Texas Slave Ranch, about some uh, some shit that went down in Texas that was really, really horrific. But yes, Hoboken Hollow was Dennis Hopper's final horror film. Congratulations, Travis Brown. Let me get your name down. Hey, I'm a poet, and I didn't know it. <laughs> Got you down, Travis. We're going to get that printed and shipped to you ASAP. Well done. And I see that uh, Tang Whistle also got uh, Hoboken Hollow as well. Yep. Hoboken Hollow. Well done. All right. And that, my horror fiends, will conclude this episode of the Week in Horror Podcast. So good to see everybody this week. We want to thank everybody so much for joining us. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, smash that like and subscribe button and be sure to hit that bell so that you never miss a future episode. Join us next week when we look back at the brutal Norwegian horror Dark Souls, the full moon popcorn horror Netherworld, the Danzinger produced adaptation of Pose, the Telltale Heart, and the insane biographical black metal horror Lords of Chaos. Be sure to check out Josh Olson's store at BadSamurai.store. He does all the awesome artwork you see splattered all over our merchandise, which you can find over at Teespring. And for more from Week in Horror, check out all of the bloody links down in the description. Follow us on the socials for the Daily Splatter, your daily horror recommendation. Join our Discord for watch parties, big announcements, all kinds of horror shenanigans with us, the cast, and crew. And support the show through channel memberships with the Army of the Dead, Super Chats, PayPal, or even through our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You can support us, help us make all these fantastic horror things come true. What are you waiting for? Join us! As always, thank you. Oh, yes. As always, thank you for being the greatest audience a horror podcast could possibly have. I'm JL. I'm Alex. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared. Mm -hmm. oh.